my granddaughter's age from 22 now to two, almost two. So there's quite a span. They're all granddaughters. I have five of them. They're all beautiful. And um, I'm doing this for them. And hopefully, you know, hopefully uh, they'll know that. Hi, I'm Benji Ross. And I'm Anna Perpera. And we want to welcome you to Awakening Lands. Where we aim to give land a voice and share stories of humans who are learning to live in ways that nurture and animate life. Here, you'll find unfolding stories of regeneration that are happening all over the planet. And feel the story of humans learning to come home. We will highlight the people working to create the possibility of regenerating whole landscapes. We're calling these people landscape leaders. The easiest way to spot them is by their devotion to their people and place. They are essential to regeneration, and we want to share their stories in order for them to see one another and for us all to see the pathways they've taken. It's in this way we'll also see entire bioregional narratives coming to life. And we're aiming to do more than tell stories. The Earth needs her humans to come together as one, to become more than we've been. Let's co-create the spaces to do so. Let's author the stories that show us how. Are you in? All right. Hello. We have Roberta Hill with us here today. Uh, Roberta is an all-weather outdoor enthusiast and field ecologist, an exuberant gardener, a fearless cook, and a lifelong learner, musician, and dancer. She and her husband are firmly rooted in the gardens, orchards, fields, and woodlands that grace their beloved Irish Hill in Buckfield, Maine. Roberta has been helping Mainers, that's people from Maine, and their communities protect the ecological systems they depend on for the past three decades. With a special passion for the lakes of her region, she has been a leader in the development of some of the state's most enduring lake education programs, has led watershed restoration and resiliency efforts, and has trained and mentored thousands of citizen scientists and stewards. She is the author of a host of print and online resources supporting citizen engagement in the protection of Maine waters, and she is keenly aware of our precious moment in history and the urgent need to restore balance to local and global ecosystems. She's thoroughly committed to the work of ensuring a better world for the future generations and grateful for having found a loving and supportive community to help her in this work at CB, or the local Center for an Ecology-Based Economy, Thanks for joining us, Roberta. How are you today? I am very well. It's just delightful to be here with both of you. I'm very excited. Great. Well, I mean, as you can tell, based on her background, you have so much amazing experience that you're bringing to talk about today, and we're both very excited. And we have we also have our co-host, Benji, here. Benji, how are you doing? No, I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for asking. I'm just so excited for this conversation. I'm excited to get to know you better, Roberta. Uh, so we've been kicking off these conversations, trying to set a certain tone with a gratitude practice, uh, largely inspired by Chris Casillas, who you mm. know, another landscape leader in the design school. You know, sets a tone of optimism, gets us oriented towards, uh, you know, open, more open and better future, or the possibility of one. Plus, it just feels good. Love to hear from you. If you want, I can go to Anna first to give you a second to think about it. Are you ready to go with something? To share? Well, I, well, I'm ready. I live in a state of gratitude, so it's never hard for me just to speak what's in my heart. Um, I think from the bio, you could tell that I'm very grateful for um, to have found a partner in life 
to share this journey with. Um, my husband, Scott, we live uh, on this beautiful piece of land here in western foothills of Maine. Um, I'm very grateful for my beautiful family. They inspire me. They drive me to be my very best self. Uh, though they're not there driving, it's just I love them so much and I want their future uh, to be uh, livable. And more than that, I want them to thrive. And I'm very grateful for this beautiful place that I live, which is um, unceded Wabanaki territory, um, otherwise known as Maine, um, here. Uh, and I am very grateful for the design school uh, for introducing me to a community of like-minded people who I can learn from and share with and experiment with and have a good time with. And I'm always grateful for pretty much everything that comes my way. Yeah, you clearly live in a state of gratitude. Anna, do you have something you wanna share? Yeah, I, I mean, Roberta, you're speaking to the choir here. I am so grateful for my family as well. Um, you know, I think that they, they gave me so much of my love for the place that we live in. Um, I live on stolen Haudenosaunee land in what is colonially known as uh, Western New York or Buffalo, New York, um, right on the, the shores of Lake Erie and Niagara River. I'm very grateful for the abundance of water that we have here and the land that has been stewarded for millennia by the Haudenosaunee and the, the Erie people here. Um, so yeah, I'm very grateful as well for all those things. How about you, Benji? Yeah, you know, we we have quite the awe-inspiring landscape today. This yurt that I'm in right now is right at the base of uh, Lambourne Mountain uh, in Paonia, Colorado. Uh, these are the lands of the the Northern Ute that were removed from, from this place. I, I also was able to uh, go to the Ute Museum somewhat recently, grateful to hear some of the Ute elders that, uh, that are still around share some perspective of this place, which was so interesting that they still have knowledge of this place, but they're not here. But anyways, back to Mount Lambourne. It snowed last night, but it snowed on the mountain. And there is this very clear delineation between snow and where it's still fall. There's like all these rich colors uh, and then just a line where it goes from fall to winter. So grateful for the fact that this world gives us these moments that are deeply awe-inspiring, and they just bring so much out of us uh, if we if we allow it, if we're open to it. So that was a cool moment that I wanted to share. Mm. Uh, and Anna, would you like to kick off a conversation? Yeah. Well, first of all, that was a beautiful visual. I'm picturing Mount Lamborn in my head. I was able to, I was lucky enough to be able to see Mount Lamborn last month when I went to go visit. So um, yeah, sounds great. Um, and Roberta, so you shared with us that your family is your driver. They're your drivers for what you do. Um, and your kind of origin story as a landscape leader is you're a mom, you're a grandmother. And at one point in time, you decided that you were not happy with the future that you were leaving your children and you made a big change and you wanted to go and learn how to save the world. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that story and what your kids and your grandkids, 
what they think of all the work that you do. Well, thank you for that question, because that, that is a story I don't get to tell very often. And um, so I'm looking forward to, to just talking to that. Back in the late 70s, I came to Maine, and how I got to Maine is a whole other story we can maybe talk about sometime. But I came to Maine, and um, I was recently married to my first husband, and we wanted to settle uh, on a piece of land and where we were living in Jackson, New Hampshire, the real estate prices were just through the roof and you had to know somebody and those, you know, uh, to even get a foot in the door there. So well, we looked around and looked around and we found this uh, piece of land in the town of Brownfield, Maine, which is also in the western part of Maine, south of where I am now. And uh, we decided to build a house or have a house built or something. And it was right during that time that we went to a talk in a, one of the small towns in the area and to listen to a guy I don't know if any of the listeners remember or know of John Howe but he actually I, I found this book and I, I thought I'd show this he wrote this book the end of fossil energy and he was talking about mostly he was talking about what happens when we hit peak oil and what's going to happen and as you know, oil companies think that there is no peak oil and we'll just keep drilling indefinitely. So that idea went away. But the whole idea of what what, what would it look like to have an energy drawn down future? And it, it his um, presentation was very straightforward. He I don't think he used any slides. I think he had like a pad of paper and it was extremely impactful. We left that thinking, no, we're not going to build a cape or a colonial and uh, you know, be uh, kind of go down that route. We're going to build our own home and it will be passive solar and we're going to grow our own food. So that kind of kicked us off on kind of a back to the land effort. Fast forward, we have two children. They're beautiful. My daughter, Eliza, who's now in her 40s and well, both of my children are now in their 40s and my son, Benjamin. We lived on the side of a hill and we raised food. We worked, we weren't uh, self-sustaining and we did jobs to make our way. My husband was a teacher. I did all kinds of odd jobs and I stitched for a living primarily. It was something I could do at home. I was raising the children. And um, we had a vacation one summer on a lake uh, in Maine and it was a nearby lake and I had time to think and I had time to read and I had time to see what the future was, uh, the, a future that was unfolding before my children. And it was like my maternal instincts just kicked into overdrive and said, you're not leaving them a planet that is safe for your children, not for their children. And it's going to be extremely uh, difficult and it's also going to be depraved of the kinds of beauty that we're experiencing right now on this lake if we don't do something different. So that is when I decided I'm going to, even though I had a job, I had two small children, that I'm going to go back to school and uh, get the skills and the abilities that I needed to make a difference. And yeah, I said kind of tongue in cheek that I wanted to save the world. It is what I wanted to do. It's still what I'd like to do. It's my ambition. <laughs> but I mean, I uh, you know, of course, I don't have the, any kind of grandiose idea that mm -hmm. I would ever do that on my own, but be part of a movement that can do it. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm right there. And so um, 
yeah, I guess that that kind of uh, there was a last part to that. Oh, what do my family think about this? And and they were extremely all of them had to put up with it. Though I did, um, I went to school during the day when my children were in school, and I did all my schoolwork at night after they had gone to bed. So I was twenty four seven basically <laughs> trying to trying to make this work. It took me six years to get through a four year degree program. But I and I, I designed my own major. They didn't have what I wanted to learn uh, at the nearby college. So I designed my own major and um, which was in ecology and education. I wanted to learn how to de redesign the education system centered on an ecological uh, framework as opposed to a mechanistic framework. And little did I know that I would still be doing that kind of work in a different way, perhaps, but uh, all these years later. What my family thinks about it, they know I'm really driven and committed to this work. They're all really wonderful people with their own lives. And um, I think uh, I think they appreciate what I do. Uh, I do get the comments. I'm just gonna be out up front here because I think, and I've said this to other people and they've said, we have this experience too. So I think it's helpful to get this out in the open. One of the things my children say to me is, well, if it's that bad, then you should just be spending time with us, you know, like mm. more time, yeah. just being with us. In mm -hmm. So that's, that's a struggle for me because mm -hmm. I, I feel that pull and I do what I can in that regard, but I still feel very strongly that um, if I don't do everything I can right now, in this point in time, um, um, I just I would feel like I'd be letting them down. My granddaughters age um, from twenty-two now to two, almost two. So there's a quite a span. They're all granddaughters. I have five of them. They're all beautiful, and um, I'm doing this for them. And hopefully, you know, hopefully, uh, they'll know that. Yeah. And I think that that is that feeling, that pull to spend more time with with people, to live your life in a in a way that is um, fulfilling with your family, versus working hard and trying to make a difference. I feel like so many people in this line of work feel feel that pull either way, and I think that most people who are committed would agree that you're showing your love by committing everything that you have to trying to make the world a better place. And you can't just let that go. So I can appreciate that feeling for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. And I, yeah. And I did just want to comment too, that I find it interesting that so many of our landscape leaders seem to do similar to what you did, which is design their own program. If they go back to school, just because there isn't, there isn't really a program out there that's been designed to do everything that you need to do that's holistic. So I think that that's awesome that you signed your own major. Right. And I, mm -hmm. and I, in that major, I took courses in economics, in biology, in ecology, in um, a, a lot. I was centered in the honors program, which was very heavy into philosophy and Western philosophy primarily, but not entirely. And um, so I, I, 
drew from many, many departments, um, writing skills. I didn't have um, speaking skills. I had never spoken to more than five people at a time. And I had to learn how to be comfortable with that. Um, and so there was just a lot I needed to get under my belt and I just knew what it was. So I just kind of picked what I needed and uh, it worked out really well. I, I felt like I got an excellent education there were a couple of duds, okay, but <laughs> I had a great, I had a great education at University of Southern Maine. I'm going to give a shout out to my alma mater. All right, rah rah. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think that uh, from what I've experienced of you, you are completely prepared uh, for this moment and for what you're doing. So. You've picked it up from your education and experience, uh, and I want to actually reflect on uh, with you uh, your relationship to landscapes. You know, we have so many landscape leaders that that are uh, in this network coming from a variety of different backgrounds, expertise, perspectives. Uh, you're the first ecologist that we're, we're interviewing, uh, and land connection has come up several times through the, the lens of an ecologist will be something new. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can share with us some of the, the qualities of your local landscape. I know you have a really close relationship with lakes, being a lake ecologist specifically. And what are some of the beautiful wild things you see uh, that you can share with us, maybe inspire us as an ecologist or just as Roberta walking through the forest? Well, the first one that just comes rushing to mind is my experience yesterday. It was my last day on lake. So I one of the things I do, I have a number of hats that I wear, um, just cobbling together uh, both a living and a life way. Um, but one of the things I do is I do work on lakes, uh, monitoring them for the presence of invasive aquatic species. And I have um, decades of experience in that work. And when I was working for a nonprofit organization for 23 years, I trained uh, volunteers to, to do this work. So I could draw from those stories, which are very rich. But I, what I want to talk about was the, our last field day yesterday. My partner's name is Keith. And we were on a lake up in the Lovell area, which is also Western Maine, but it's getting higher into the mountains and it's surrounded by mountains. It's really uh, an exquisite part of the state. And we were, uh, we had this one little patch to do it, was, it wasn't so little it was a pretty gargantuan wetland when you get into the wetlands you have to really kind of muck in there uh to to see what you can see you're looking you're, you're trying to screen the entire littoral zone of this you know 900 and some odd acre lake and um and so you need to when the plants get really dense, it's hard paddling. You know, you don't want to use motors through that. You need to paddle and it's pretty hard paddling. Well, our friends are the beaver. So the, the beaver um, who live in these areas, they develop a networks of trails that they fortunately, you know, nicely carve out. It's just enough to get the keel of the boat uh, in a comfortable place to get through them. And so we were just following beaver trails through the wetland and the sky was kind of lifting off the mountaintops the the low clouds were lifting a little bit of sun shining through it was truly truly uh just if i can say it felt like really like we were in a sacred place we were in their world and we were um 
you know, we're often visited by dragonflies who will land on our huts and, you know, see turtles darting away from our paddles and such. And that, uh, that is, <laughs> Keith and I will look at each other and we'll say, well, this is a good day on the water. You know, you just, you couldn't pay someone to have a good day like that. And yet we're doing the work. We're being very watchful. That's what we're being paid to do. But it's just beautiful work. And we ended up uh, following one of the beaver trails back to a smaller um, beaver hut where there, he, it had designed a really nice pool behind the, behind its lodge. And it, from that pool, we were able to access this bit of woods that I think that was the only way you could access it was from Beaver Trail. And uh, it had not been cut in, I don't even know, hundreds of years. Wow. And it was just a stand of pine and hemlock, you know, of apex forest. There's very little undergrowth uh, and a very, very, here in Maine, and a very dense spongy layer of pine needles and needles and mosses and it again just really felt like we were in a cathedral of these trees and that was just where we had our lunch and so that is that is the kind of work that I do I love my work it's hard work I mean we put in very long days but it's also just glorious Wow, that's so beautiful. You clearly have just so much love for your place and the landscapes there and all the work that you do. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you envision a healthy northern Acadian forest to look like. What kind of landscape would you want to leave your your children and grandchildren? Well, that's a that's a big question because um we know that a certain amount of climate chaos is is baked into the system at this point. We know that um, the one of the tipping points is the boreal forest, the northern and more southerly boreal forests. Maine is kind of uh, at the intersection. Parts of Maine are kind of at the intersection of that more southerly boreal forest and the more northerly, but uh, there's going to be shift in the forest. And it's not it, species that we're all used to seeing here in Maine may not make it through. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them may be able to migrate northerly and some uh, you know, may be lost to other things that are happening as a result of not just climate chaos, but you know, human impacts, which are invasive species, the kind of thing that I've been involved in for a long time, helping to train volunteers to be mindful and to be on the lookout for invasive species. Um, so I guess this is, uh, I'll just say, I my, my hope is that we will be uh, good, watchful, careful. And when I say careful, I'm kind of meaning that um, the world if you understand ecology, you understand that the world is incredibly complex because it's all comprised of relationships. Mm. And if you bear that in mind that it's so complex that not one person or not an AI or anything can get its head around that complexity, we try to understand it as best we can. And as 
Joe Brewer has pointed out really beautifully, we know so much about earth science and the way earth works. And that's wonderful. We have to draw upon that. But I think we also have to be really careful to recognize that we may not know it all. So we should always be erring on the side of caution, which is something that we haven't been obviously doing. We're just like full speed ahead on the global growth economy. And, um, you know, we'll just yeah. see what happens and we'll deal with it afterwards. I mean, that's been the kind of the cultural narrative. But uh, so I'm saying to, I hope that we're, we've learned to be more careful and that we do, um, we are mindful of what not only Western science tells us, but the science that goes back predates Western science, which is the uh, the just careful, respectful observation of nature that allowed indigenous folk on this planet to live here, uh, basically yeah. in harmony for the mm -hmm. most part for millennia. And so, um, and I'm really proud our state of Maine basically uh, just recently received some National Science Foundation grant money to put together a program here that will try to combine uh, Western scientific knowledge and indigenous knowledge as a focal point for our, our higher education systems in the state. And I think that's a wonderful steps. So I hope we can really develop mm. that so we can learn how best to deal with not, we're not going to protect every species we have now. And mm -hmm. that's a hard thing to come to grips with because if, if you live in Maine, you know how much the people of Maine love what we have and will just do so much to protect it. And um, we need to bring that willingness into a place where we understand that though we may not save it all, every relationship that we can foster and strengthen and feed and nurture um, is going to prevent a, a more wide-scale unraveling. And there's a, a, so much we can do. Um, so I'm hoping that people are engaged at their very, very local level up to the bioregional level and, and uh, trans-bioregional global level. But um, I, can't, I can't picture what the future forest is going to, to look like. I guess that's a complicated answer to a complicated mm -hmm. question. Well, how appropriate. No, that makes a lot of sense. It was really <laughs> good. Um, definitely informative. I think people are going to appreciate that. So much of what you talk about is a shifting paradigm. And so maybe we think more um, about in these coming questions about um, what that looks like and and some of the themes there within. Uh, you mentioned um, blending traditional ecological knowledge with science. I've heard that referred to as two-eyed seeing, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a poetic way of putting it. And I'm I'm wondering if you can reflect. I think you have a really you probably have a really interesting perspective, certainly with regards to your relationship with science. Probably also a complex question and answer. Uh, I'm ready for it, but I'm wondering, you know, what is that relationship for you? And maybe I'll just leave it at that for now. All right. So I I love that question because I do have I do have a take on science 
it's not my take necessarily. I mean, basically, uh, people have understood that science has its limitations, and there's certain questions that science cannot answer. But I kind of started with that uh, that as my grounding premise, and uh, tried to understand. I love science. I love the process of um, observing and creating a, a theory, a hypothesis about how things work and testing the hypotheses and coming up with a conclusion and having that uh, you know, tested by other scientists. I think that's a beautiful process for learning, but it is a tool to be used by the kind of learning that is embodied in traditional ecological knowledge, but it's embodied in all of us. We were all born with this ability to, to learn through direct experience with nature, which is basically what we are all part of. So our external world and our internal world are they're just inherently connected and there's and exploring that is something that people have been doing since I think human beings came to be. So we all have access to that deeper way of um, knowing, uh, inquiring about the world and coming up with understandings about the world. And I, I believe that that way has a much broader, more comprehensive, more cohesive, more relational, more holistic way of seeing the world. And it's because we have favored, and, and I don't want to say anything bad about science because it has given us a lot, but we have almost forgotten that it's a tool. <laughs> it's a tool, but it's not the thing. And all the stuff that science leaves out is not unimportant. It's not to be not valued. So as a ecologist and as an educator, I've always had a lot of fun with starting right off the bat, no matter who I'm talking to, kind of talking about the limitations of science, or at least it will come up in the course of us going out and starting to do field work together, because I think it's really important, especially for young people to realize that if they don't have a scientific bent, like they don't feel like they really respond to the science that they're getting in their textbooks and so on, that they have a curious mind and that they have the ability to um, study and uh, gain insight into the world around them and to their ability to um, comprehend the world. I often tell uh, young students that being an artist and being a scientist are very, have very, very similar skill sets in that artists, if they're drawing from experience, which most art is drawing from experience, it's this careful observation phase um, and that that's something, again, that anyone can do. I also bring up the fact that, um, you know, our, what we understand, if we're understanding it through science, you basically through technology, it's our understanding is going to be limited by the reach 
of our tools like how big is your hand lens you know how how high a magnification can you see in your microscope um uh you know what are the, how far can your telescope see what our understanding is constantly being updated as our technology allows us to learn more and more so we should never again feel like we've got a complete grasp of things because as our technology changes as our and frankly our worldview is part of our um if you want to call it our social technology our way of viewing the world can also bring insights that we're missing through um, just a, a fully mechanistic uh, technological lens. So those are just a couple of ways. I think it's really important to um, make sure people understand that relationship between science and our whole selves and our whole uh, understanding of, of the world. Oh, and I, I'm so glad that you brought up your educator background and how you're bringing all of this knowledge to your community, because that's really what I think separates a landscape leader from someone who is simply working on restoring the land is that you're not just doing it by yourself. You are trying to bring in as many people as possible. And it sounds like you work with a, a wide array of community members. I'm wondering how you've approached working with young kids that are that are really just so open to different worldviews that you having that interaction with you at such a young age is going to have such a powerful impact. So I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you could speak a little bit to how the younger kids kind of uh, uh, respond to, to some of these activities that you do with them. I, I really had the pleasure to work with uh, young people pre-K to high school uh, in the public school system for a couple of decades through two jobs I had in the nonprofit sector. And I was an itinerant ecology teacher, um, primarily around uh, lake ecology. And I had, um, when I first was given the first position, the executive director says, okay, you're our educator, you're going to be creating an uh, uh, ecology program to bring into the public school system. Here's a box full of curriculum materials that we have been putting aside here in this box for you know quite some time. We don't think any of this stuff is in the classroom. So design a program to get in the classroom. So that was kind of my marching orders. And I was also fresh, uh, uh, still involved. I, I was an intern, so I was still involved in my uh, the research I was doing for um, my honors thesis, which was ecology and education, how to re uh, design basically our school system, our education system based around an ecological model. And so I had that all fresh in my mind. So I thought, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring these curriculum materials into it, but I'm going to have three kind of primary legs of, of the stool of my program. The first one is going to be uh, that we're going to, um, the students are going to talk about what's meaningful to them, what they see in their community. Um, we're going to, um, and then eventually identify some kind of concern or some kind of opportunity that they would like to get engaged on. So there would be a community project, a land-based community project. I would also be teaching ecology and primarily lake ecology, but lakes are attached to everything else. So obviously the water cycle touches um, the atmosphere, the land, and uh, you know lakes and rivers and ponds and watersheds. So I would be teaching lake ecology uh, and they would be engaged in that. That would be more of the classroom portion. 
And then um, there would also be uh, an opportunity for them to research based on what they were learning, both on their on the ground project and uh, through their ecology lessons, they'd be able to do their own research on their project. And I would be there to support them in that in that project. And part of that would culminate in making a presentation to someone, but mostly the adults in their community, either their uh, teachers and uh, faculty members, or in many cases to their local um, municipalities of what they were doing and, and why it was important and how the community could support um, them doing more of this kind of work in the future. So those were the th things I brought into all my all my um, my courses, whatever grade they they were. And it were for the very youngest kids, um, really just being in nature uh, and understanding that they were um, connected to it and that they could participate in um, uh, just appreciating it in many, many ways that they had these wonderful senses. And so just getting uh, kids to use their senses, um, just exercises like having one child uh, put a, a, um, a blindfold on their partner and lead them carefully off into the woods to a certain spot and the blindfolded youth and this happened, you can do this at a very young age, would be able to feel around. Do you feel a tree, a rock, the moss? You know, what do you feel in this area? What do you hear? Has the temperature changed here because there's these little microclimates? So be mindful of everything. And then um, they're led back to the starting point and uh, the blindfolded child then has a chance to go find their spot without their blindfold mm. using just the information that they had gleaned from their uh, very um, sensual experience of that place. And this is, again, sense of place. This is starting this at a very cursory level in a very, very simple way. But this is often what's missing um, from schools. It just seems to me such a no-brainer way. It's a way we learn yeah. naturally through our curiosity and our concern and our, um, but anyway, I loved that work and I loved working with young ones. And then I went on to um, working with adult learners, which I also enjoyed very, very much. I had students in there that were octogenarians, um, mm. but yet I loved it all. And I'm looking forward, uh, it sounds through CB, my work at the Center for an Ecology-Based Economy, that I will be um, working at least with teachers and perhaps back in the classroom again with um, maybe middle school and high school students. And I'm eager to see how we can bring the bioregional work into that. Yeah, uh, well, thank you for, yeah, such a comprehensive answer. From For me, what stands out is the importance of accessibility for land connection. You, you Earlier in the conversation, you brought up your opportunity to uh, have the time to read and to just sit into a landscape. And that's what led you to become an ecologist. And for these, these young people uh, and old people who maybe haven't had that, op that opportunity, it's such a transformative experience. The land itself can change us if we just learn to listen. I think that's such an important lesson. It's such an important lesson. A couple more questions we've got to cover. When you joined the design school, you were so enthusiastic. You brought so much energy 
I feel like you just ignited the room whenever you walked in. I'm curious, can you share a little bit about what inspired you so much about the school? Oh, that's a great question. And even though you sent me the questions ahead of time, I can't, hadn't given this one much thought. I'd thought about some of the other ones. So this is going to be completely off the cuff, but it's easy to talk to. Um, and I think it's, it's stated in my bio here at the design school, I was born for this work. I recognized this immediately as where I belong. Um, it was, there was just no question about it. And that is because um, this perspective I have, I've had from a very early age. I really gained my ecological awareness as a tiny kid in the Pacific Ocean, floating on the surface of the ocean and letting the wave action, the soft wave action out be beyond the breakers, rising and falling and the salt air everywhere and the sun and everything. And I would absolutely disappear as a person as I was called Bobby then. <laughs> so Bobby would disappear and I would be one with everything. And, you know, I would pretend I didn't hear my parents when they called me to come in because I, I simply loved it there. And I, so I, I took that from a very early age as what was real. And much of what I was being fed by the society around me was not even thinking of that at all, that connectedness to nature. And um, so I had a hard time seeing myself in my school. My the first paper I ever wrote was on, what if uh, we were suddenly all attacked uh, by something from outer space? Wouldn't then we stop fighting with each other? I think it was like in the fourth grade. Like I just had this sense like we just needed to understand uh, that we are one. So, so, but again, it wasn't really being reflected back to me much by the um, consumer culture that was really ramping up. It started <laughs> in the 50s. That's when I was born in the 50s. And uh, so I was really the guinea pig generation for, you know, just the rampant uh, neoliberal consumer culture that we, you know, that has now kind of brought our planet to the brink. So when I heard Joe talk and I'd seen some of his videos and then I got the book and read the book and and then I learned through his outreach, the school was starting up. I was like, I was like, maybe the first one to sign up. I don't even know. It's like, I want to do this. And um, and he said, oh, OK, well, we're just starting to get some people and we'll get back to you when we're really going to make it happen. Uh, I just recognize that this is this is thinking that I have been longing for uh, being in the company of such thinking my whole life, and um, that this bi and then uh, the more I learned about this kind of the bioregion, it's kind of like this magic scale in some ways where we can still feel connected to this as if it's home, as if we identify with it because we're culturally familiar with it enough to call it home but yet it's large enough to actually have potency 
at the global mm -hmm. scale, which is where we need to be making the changes now. And then I understood, and then, yeah, the whole Danella, we had talked about Danella Meadows and her her leverage uh, schema where the, the most effective and, and the greatest leverage exists at the point um, of shifting worldviews. And because I've had that other worldview my whole life, more or less, I thought like I, and, and because I've, I've been an educator, because I have some ecological skills that I can bring to task, um, I think I'm like, like, I think I've been preparing for this work my whole life. Uh, I mean, I honestly feel that way. And mm -hmm. uh, who knows how that happens? I'm <laughs> not going to say I've got it figured out, but I'm just following that, uh, that gut feeling. And I'm, and every time I follow that gut feeling, I end up in a better place. So I'm, I'm sticking with it. Oh, that's so great. Well, and I think that uh, you have clearly within the design school, we've been on meetings with you where you're, you're focusing on your story and you've been working at this for the design school for regenerating earth started in February. March 2023. March. Um, so over the past seven months, I feel like we've been able to kind of see your story. Uh, you you hone in on the the um, the frames that you want to use and and all of the different talking points, and you've really put it together um, very nicely. You recently gave a webinar with the uh, Center for Ecology Based Economy or CB, where you talked about your story and bioregionalism and why it's so important. So I am just wanted to say how impressed we are. You're bringing, you're really bringing this to your community when you're talking about this. I think that that's such a, an amazing example of what a landscape leader can do is bringing bioregionalism and um, bioregional learning to their community. And you even uh, talking about Donella Meadows and how paradigm shifts are the greatest leverage point. Um, I'm wondering how you, what other elements or uh, what other frames you've used that have been really impactful when you've shared this story? What other frames? Other than the ecological frame, I think that's that's fundamental to who I am and to this story. So I always make sure people understand just the essentials of uh, ecology. Uh, as a as a starting point for then understanding why, for example, um, I was asked a while back to do a presentation for middle school students, a, a kind of series of classes of middle school students who were involved in a community art class. They had they were, it was an art class, but they were they were charged with creating community art, and so they the students had identified two. Uh, issues that they were really concerned with. And I think it's really telling in a way what those concerns were. One was basically pollution, including carbon pollution, you know, and, and the climate change. And the other was uh, mental health. And uh, so those were their two identified uh, concerns that they needed help expressing in their community. So I did a presentation to them about, you know, like what's pollution and what does that have to do with mental health? <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't going to hit hard on the mental health thing, but it was just almost like a, 
it it couldn't not be said once you understand why we have pollution we have pollution because we're not taking uh, we're not playing into the natural cycles that matter on this planet has been recycled for four point it's either three or eight billion years correct me on that but for billions of years the same matter around and around and around and up until like the industrial revolution it wasn't a major problem uh, we, uh, we, there was no major problems with pollution but we stopped participating in that recycling of matter and we now we have too much unrecyclable matter all over the world that's pollution and once the students could see like once they understood the ecological principles of things needing to recycle over and over again and how does that happen in the forest how does it happen in your garden and now what's happening on the planet stuff is stuck there and it's that's what pollution is and if you're living in a place where this is what you have to deal with what do you think you're going to feel like you're going to be really depressed about what's happening to your neighborhood or your community and um so they they got all that and they ended up making some beautiful community art but i just wanted to use that as an example of how starting with the fundamentals of ecology is i think like critically important even though all of us mm -hmm. a lot of us are um you know we understand ecology as a, as a word and it's a study and it might have to do with relationships and stuff i think to really kind of spend some time going through the fundamentals i think is a pretty important grounding frame it's my I, I, only frame as a you know somebody who's come of settler culture yeah well, well, what a what a clever um, connection between the way we are treating our landscapes and and resource flows and and mental health. Um, I think I so often think I look at the world and I, and I think to myself, it is insane. It is insane, and we need like a a, a broad awakening that that you know the only way to awaken ourselves out of so much suffering. I think as a collective is to um, see more clearly things like material flows, understand our impact on ecology and that it impacts us all the way down to our psychology and the way we experience life. It's all connected, it's all connected. And sometimes it's just these, these simple connections that need to be made that uh, allow people to see things anew. Uh, and then we can start talking about possibilities once we're really clear on the why once we're really clear on the why. So I think that's beautiful. Thank you for that framing. Um, I think it's actually a good place to, to kind of wrap up the conversation. Uh, we do want to say Biregional Activation Tour in the Northern Acadian Forest, fall of 2024. It's a little ways Ooh. off, but we're already excited. Uh, Anna and I hope to join you there. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, lastly, is there any way that we can support UNCB? So much of what we're doing, Anna and I here with these conversations is, is lifting landscape leaders up, clarifying the role, showing that these people really, really matter for bioregional regeneration everywhere. So with that said, with that spirit, how can we support UNCB? Well, for one, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now if it hadn't been for the design school and for you and you. So that's just be really clear that 
you've already done and are doing so much by continuing on, uh, showing your own leadership, um, making me feel like, you know, yeah, I, I think I could do that. Uh, um, oh, wouldn't I love to try that? You know, so you're inspiring me, you're encouraging me, you're teaching me. Uh, the, so I, I can't say that you could do any more on that front. And this idea of a podcast, uh, well, I have to take some credit. I had it too. I think <laughs> it's a brilliant mm-hmm. way that we can with um, limited resources, Mm. uh, start sharing these stories so that others like me who has, you know, in many ways felt quite isolated with regard to me bringing my whole self to the table, which I think is what we're talking about here, you know, now is that um, if we're gonna do this, we all have to bring our whole selves to the table. And there's Mm. some uh, places where, you know, I was still feeling like, is that welcome here? I don't really know, but the more we can share these stories and the more people can feel, yeah, this is, this is, I, I really get that. And I, I have felt the same. Uh, that's gonna, that's going to be so powerful and impactful. So I just say, mm-hmm. keep on doing exactly what you're doing. It's beautiful. And I'm just, I'm just in so much awe of what you're all accomplishing with the well what we're all accomplishing here i feel like i'm like we're all part of it like here at the design school i'm really proud of the work we're doing here with the leadership amazing leadership that we have i do want to just say um you just pointed out something that's just so valuable when we're talking about paradigm shift shifting uh you know so much of it is storytelling so much of it is building coherence around a new story of possibility and you just mentioned something interesting and that is that that is uh something that gives us permission we're all giving each other permission to, to share this story as we all practice doing it and practice putting ourselves out there. So yeah, let's do that together. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, just to also mention that we're, we will be, when we release this episode, we will definitely be uh, including a link to Roberta's webinar that she gave for CB as the new bioregional coordinator. And we'll also include a link to CB's website, ecologybasedeconomy.org, where you can also donate uh, to the organization that's doing some amazing things in Maine. Thank you so much, Roberta, for joining us and for sharing your really incredible story. Uh, we really appreciate it. I so appreciated having this opportunity to be with you both, Anna and Benji. Thanks for listening. If you're feeling a jolt of inspiration. If you'd like to support Anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all this can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and please tell your landscape we said hello. Hello.